Hey, good morning, everybody. Happy third Sunday of this season of Lent as we are heading towards Easter in the church year. And can you believe it? This, do you know what today is? Today is the one year anniversary of the last time we actually met together as a church in our church building. Isn't that, a, isn't that crazy? Who would have known? In fact, we didn't even know on that uh, last Sunday that we met that, that, it, that we wouldn't be meeting the next week. And what a year it's been. And kudos to all of you. And can I tell you a COVID joke? I mean, it's been so intense and so stressful. I thought maybe I could tell you a COVID joke. I found a scripture that gives us evidence that we should be wearing our masks. And it's where... Saul of Tarsus is heading towards Damascus. Get it? Damascus. And Jesus stopped him and uh, got him off his high horse. <laughs> that is such a bad dad pastor joke. I know that if you continue listening to this sermon, it's a credit to your character. Thank you. My, my grandkids, I told them that yesterday and they went, what? <laughs> Anyway, it's good to be with you and we're, it's my joy to continue this amazing series that we're going through based on the Gospel of John, the book of John entitled Embodiment, seeing the good news through the eyes of John the Beloved who had a front row seat to, to the most incredible event in human history and that was that God became a human being, God became embodied in a human body and, and in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And John, as a very young man, had the privilege of being, bearing witness to this. And five decades later, he's, he's reflecting on that in the light of that embodiment continuing through you and me. God wants to continue to make God's self known through us as his body, his people. And speaking of COVID, I think that our text today speaks to what is uh, an important aspect of embracing embodiment, and that is embracing the season changes of our lives, recognizing that life consists of a series of seasons. And that means learning the art of letting go of seasons that are, are passing and in order that we can embrace the new. And the scary part of that is often in the seasons of our life, we don't quite know what we're grasping hold of yet. We often have to let go before we know what we're grabbing onto. Uh, you know, a trapeze artist likes to see that trapeze uh, before they let go of the other one. And, and in the life of faith, often God says, let go. And then the new comes. And, and you could call this, and some scholars have called our teaching text today. And if you're joining us by YouTube, we just read this in our, church, our Zoom church at VEV from John chapter 3, verses 22 to 36. And some scholars have called this text uh, John's Swan Song. I invite you to join with us if you had written in on the reading. Look it up in the Bible of your choice and journey with us through this text today. And uh, as I said, scholars have called this John Swan song uh, or um, embracing your demise, which doesn't sound like a lot of good news, doesn't it? Uh, I mean, I thought we had good news here. Demise in a world of upward mobility and bigger is better and achieving doesn't sound like 
good news. But it's all about season changes. And the context of our story is, is, is we've just had these very few eventful days in Jerusalem where Jesus and his disciples went for the Passover and it ended up in the cleansing of the temple and then this very meaningful conversation with Nicodemus. And now it's time for Jesus to return home to Galilee. And he does something very strange. Jesus, it's, the text says that rather than going directly to Galilee, he heads out into the countryside of Judea. And if you know the geography of the Holy Land, you know that Judea is not north to Galilee. It's actually east towards the Jordan River. And this seems rather strange because he's heading in the direction of where John the Baptist was baptizing. And we're, we're, we're left with questions. And I saw some things this week that I've never seen before. It's kind of like that old phrase, God, when did you put this in the Bible? But Jesus takes this direction towards Jord the Jordan. And it seems strange. It seems like it's this detour. But uh, when you look at it closer, you realize that this was the normal route that Jews would take when they were going back to Galilee from Jerusalem because they didn't want to go through Samaria. And we're going to be hearing about that next week when Joanna teaches. But Jesus seems to be following kind of the, the Jewish way of doing things. And he's, he's going around Samaria, it seems, and he's heading towards the Jordan River. But we'll find out next week that it was actually a bit of a head fake. It looked like he was going to do the Jewish things, but all of a sudden he goes through Samaria. And uh, what's that about? Why does he do the head fake? Uh, we were out walking our grand dog yesterday with our, our family, and we noticed he's learned some good head fakes. Where he moves this way, and then he moves this way as he's playing with the other dogs. And I thought it was hockey moves, but Samuel informed me that it was actually soccer moves that he'd been teaching him. Well, Jesus does this head fake. Why is that? The second thing is, is that Jesus heads towards, he does something else that's quite strange and leaves question marks. He, he heads towards John the Baptist. And you remember that he was part of John the Baptist's crowd for a, a season where he was baptized himself and John gave witness that Jesus was the Messiah. But now Jesus moves towards John where John is baptizing kind of on the border of the Jordan River in Samaria, but Jesus moves towards where John is, but stops short of actually joining John's party or church or group that John was a part of. But he's close enough that people hear about Jesus being nearby, and so much so that people who are with John begin to leave John's crowd and join Jesus' crowd. And somewhere around this time, our text tells us that there's a theological argument that broke out about ceremonial cleansing or purification. And, and it may have been because of all the baptizing that was going on. John was still baptizing. The disciples of Jesus were baptizing. And hey, it wouldn't be the last time there was a big argument in church history about water baptism. So we don't know exactly what the essence of this argument was. But we do know the result. The result of the argument, it was between an unknown Jew and the disciples of John the Baptist about some kind of ceremonial cleansing. And we know what the result was. That it was resentment, animosity, competition, and conflict between people who should have been allies. 
the disciples of John the Baptist go back to John and they complain to him and they say, Rabbi, the one that you gave witness to on the other side of the Jordan, they're baptizing now. They've taken a, they've stolen a, a page out of your book. It's plagiarism. Is that the gratitude that you get? You gave him his start. Now look what he's doing. Not only is he doing what you do, but people are leaving us and joining his group. And it makes you wonder why they were so resentful because they would have remembered why John had given witness to Jesus. They understood that. And they must have felt awe initially when they realized that they were part of ushering in the era of the Messiah. And maybe they were excited. We don't know this, but maybe they were excited to hear that Jesus was coming their way because they thought, all right, Jesus is gonna join our church and man, we are gonna have camp meeting 29 or whatever year it was in the Jewish year. We're gonna have a big reunion and we're gonna get this party going, this Messiah project on the rails. But then Jesus stops, doesn't join them, but he's close enough that people who are with him begin to leave John's group and go, and they must have thought, whoa, and, and they must have felt disappointment as they begin to feel demise. They begin to feel diminishment and decrease. They begin to feel like, they began to feel like there's this season change happening in the sense of grief and loss. And John's response to them is one of these classic statements in self-awareness and humility, which are so essential for being truly embodied. He says these words, no one can receive anything except that it's given to them from heaven. What caught my attention as I was just sleeping and eating and wrestling with this text this week is this word given. This word given is loved by John. It's like belief we talked about last week and signs the week before. It just appears so often in the book of John. God so loved that he gave. And it's a, it's a wonderful and popular word through the whole New Testament. 400 times this word appears. The good news is about not losing, but giving. And John says, I've been given a gift from heaven. He says, you yourselves know, he said to his disciples, you guys know what I'm about. You've been listening to my podcast. You know, even though our YouTube clicks are going down and, and, and the likes are going down, you know what I'm here for. I was here to bear witness. I'm, I'm just, and then he does the unimaginable for John the Baptist. He brings up a wedding feast. He says, I'm just called to get ready for a wedding feast. I'm just called to set the, the table for a wedding. Are you kidding me? John the Baptist and weddings, it, it, they, they just don't fit. He's this stern, austere, uh, ascetic prophet that wears camel skins and is in the desert and he likes to call people snakes and, and, and he warns about fire and judgment and cleansing and purging and and uh, remember he talked about the chaff, burning them in the fire, that God's going to bring out his heavenly lawnmower and just mow the wicked down. And now John starts talking about a wedding. It doesn't seem to fit. 
And that's one of the advantages of seeing the good news from the proximity of John the Beloved. We get a front row seat into a conversation with John the Baptist that none of the other gospels tell us about. And John probably wasn't there, but we know that probably people that were coming from John the Baptist's camp were friends of John. And he said, hey, what's going on? And they told him this story. And there is a, uh, uh, a shift that seems to happen with John the Baptist. So, and, and what's this about? Why the sudden change of, of imagery for, for John the Baptist? Well, I could be wrong, but I think after John had given, given witness to Jesus, he started following Jesus and getting reports of what Jesus was doing because after all, he'd, he'd given witness to this, that he was the Messiah and he was excited about that. And so he wanted to hear, when's, you know, when's, when's the Lord going to knock off Pilate and Herod and, and you know, get rid of those religious leaders? And he must have been excited about the cleansing of the temple. That would have been really right down his aisle. But then he gets this strange report that the first major sign of the Messiah is he shows up at a wedding and he turns water into wine. In fact, so much wine that everybody had more than enough. And what's kind of humorous to me, I, maybe I shouldn't laugh, but John was what was called a Nazarite, which means he could never cut his hair. He had to live ascetic life like I talked about, but he also was forbidden to drink wine I don't know. I don't know how that, that must have impacted John to hear that Jesus, his first miracle, was to produce all this wine that he wasn't even allowed by Yahweh to drink. Oh my. And I think John's paradigms must have just been shaken up and he's going, what is going on? But you know, when that happens in your life, when God does stuff that doesn't quite fit your theological box, you go back to scripture, and I'm sure John must have, and he began to discover through the Old Testament that history begins and ends with a wedding, that's the plan, and that God regards himself as a heavenly bridegroom and Israel is his bride, and Messiah was to be a bridegroom with God's people as his bride. And so John says, hey, you guys, we're going to a wedding. And guess what? I'm not the main event. The bride and the groom, they're the main event. I'm just the friend of the bridegroom. And that would have been a familiar term with these people because the friend of the bridegroom was kind of like the best man at weddings today or, or the maid of honor, or maybe a combination of the two. He was like the ruler of the feast that uh, Jesus where Jesus turned water into wine. He's like a governor, an administrator, an organizer, uh, making sure that everybody is happy, making sure most of all that for the bride and the groom, as a friend of the bride and the groom, who loved them so much that it was the absolute best day of their life. That was his goal. That's all he lived for. And he bore witness to that and helped and served in every way possible so that their, uh, their married life would be launched and it was very important in Jewish culture and history, as it is still is today. That first day, that first ceremony is so important. And so you can feel John's joy as he talks about this. This whole transcript is laced with the joy that John is feeling, that he's helped to bring the bride and the groom together. 
Now, I've attended many weddings, including my own. You'll be happy <laughs> to know. And other than my own wedding, I have not been the main event. My wife and I were at ours, of course. But other than my own, I've, I've sometimes had a role of being the efficient. In fact, I've done that a lot, a lot more than being the best man. I've, I've officiated weddings, wonderful weddings. Dan and Kirsten's and Gordy and Shannon's and many in our church, Alec and Crystal and my own daughter and her husband. I was not only the officiant, but I was given the responsibility of giving away the bride. Oh my gosh, that was something to not only officiate and also have to give away my daughter. And that's why I learned firsthand that weddings are about season changes. They're about not only joy, but grief and loss and being willing to let go into a new season. But I also found that it's an amazing gift and in her case, it's been a gift that just keeps on giving. And so they're happy occasions, but there's grief and their loss. And in my experience, these, all these weddings have been this wacky combination of incredible joy and incredible stress. And it's because your most important focus is like John the Baptist, to make this day the best day of their lives. And you love them so much that their joy is your joy. And probably one of the moments that I've seen bring tears the most at weddings is when you hear the voice of the bride and the groom and they voice their love to one another and their vows about being, about loving for better or worse, or rich or poor, sickness and health, we're going to be one. And so John said, I'm a happy man. It's not about me. He, he must become greater. I must become less. So what's the message for us? First of all, I think embodiment, as I said, means season changes and knowing to let go in order to embrace the new. And it's, for John the Baptist, the crowds were dwindling. Uh, soon he would be arrested by Herod for confronting him about Herod's uh, adulterous relationship with his brother's wife, open adultery. And John would be arrested for that and thrown into prison and, and languish alone in that prison. And then shortly after, he would be executed. And so John was was recognizing a, a time that he had to let go. And it reminds me of the song by the Gaithers we used to sing, to give the things you cannot keep for the things you're never gonna lose is the way to find the joy God has for you. And the problem is the things that we cannot keep are the things we see. And the things we're never gonna lose is we can't see them. And it takes trusting God and it, and it takes being uh, willing to wait through the night times of weeping before we can embrace the joy that comes in the morning. The second thing is our false self can never say gladly like John the Baptist said, I must decrease, he must increase. The false self doesn't like that. Not because achievement and uh, accomplishment aren't important, but unfortunately the false self finds its identity and its value in those things. But John knew that he was, that's, he was not those things. He was a beloved child of God. 
And I was struck by a podcast I was listening to this week by Rob Bell. And he said something in a way that was so unique. And he was talking about the Genesis story and how that we often begin our story in Genesis 3 rather than Genesis 1. Of course, Genesis 3 is the story of our fall and our failure. But our story doesn't begin there. Our story begins in Genesis 1 with that creation poem where God creates us and then he says to us, it's good, it's so very good. And then Bell said these words, it's so good to be you and it's good that you're here. And he just kept saying that over and over and over again. That doesn't mean that we're not sometimes bad people and we do bad things. Of course we do, and that comes into the story, doesn't it? And it's part of our story where we have to repent and acknowledge that we've hurt others or learn from our stupid mistakes. That, that's part of our lives. But at the essence, it's good to be you. And it's good that you're here. And this was the song that John sang and that rang in John's heart that through the ebb and flow of life and seasons, through rising and declining, through thriving and demise, it's good to be here and it's good to be me. He knew that when his star was rising and when his star began and his light began to, to dim. And even John the Beloved, after he planted so many churches and preached so many sermons and done so many wonderful things, John the Beloved, at the end of his life, he said, what are you? Are you a prophet? Are you the greatest apostle that belonged to Jesus? He said, no, I am the one who Jesus loves. It's good to be you. It's good that you're here. And, it's, and you are the one, the essence of your identity. You are the one that Jesus loves. And finally, let me say that I think we're all friends of the bridegroom to each other, are we not? Think about it. I mean, we're all the bride, yes, but in relationship to each other, we don't own each other. We, we each belong to the bridegroom. We belong to God. My wife belongs to God. I'm a friend of the bridegroom. My son, my daughter, my grandchildren, they belong to God. And I'm just a friend of the bridegroom to introduce them help them hear his voice, to point them out. Point them out to him and point him out to them. And you, my congregation, I don't own you. You belong to God. And I'm just a friend, the bridegroom, to introduce you. And don't we all need that for each other? We belong to God, we're his bride, but we sometimes have trouble hearing, don't we? We have trouble seeing God in our stories, and we help one another to do that. And we help one another to see how we are in God's story. We help our children, our children, your children, parents. You don't own them. They belong to God. You're just friends of the bridegroom to introduce. And so we remind our children, we remind each other, and we're going to remind each other as we do this in communion in a few moments that it's good to be you, it's good that you're here, and you are the one that Jesus loves, that God is in your story, and you are in God's story.
We must decrease. He must increase. And so our joy is made complete. Grace and peace.